What, episode 42 of What? What is a podcast? It's part documentary, part comedy roundtable, where two friends tell each other fascinating stories. My name's Ellie Mae, and joining me as always is Chelsea Hoffbush. That's me. I still can't stop thinking about that TikTok I sent you that's like, two girls start a podcast. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I was happy to realize that the vibe was a little different from us. That's what I was going to say. It made me feel superior. I was like, oh, well, we could have just started a podcast that was like, oh my God, Ellie, who did you kiss? And you're like, my boyfriend. Girl boss, girl bosses. Oh my God, I can't believe we're such girl bosses with our podcast. But I'm glad that we're two girls that started a podcast. Me too. It's oh my been gosh. a wild and wacky ride. It has. And I will, I'm doing the artist way right now. And um, I had to answer all these prompts yesterday. It was like, I have a true, honest, loyal, and creative friendship with dot, dot, dot. And I wrote Chelsea. Stop. I won't. I can't believe we're such girl bosses. Speaking of girl bosses, Kamala Harris, Joe Biden. We are on the other side of last episode. That's true. An episode full of anxiety and fear. We're experiencing a pretty fascinating conspiratorial coup from uh, from the other side. But let's see how that evolves, shall we? I did see, as of recording this, on Tuesday, November 10th, 10th, I know what day it is, I saw apparently the Trump administration has formally applied to block the results of Pennsylvania. The whole thing? They want to prevent Pennsylvania from certifying the results. As a quick refresher to my darling immigrant friend, Ellie, uh, (laughs) the way that it works is they count all the votes, right? And they're telling you in real time as they're counting, like they're doing like tally updates, right? And when it gets to a certain threshold where they're like, there's really no way that this could change, that's when they announce the results of the election. Right. That's when they they call it. Yeah, they call it. So Pennsylvania has called their race for Joe Biden because they have counted enough votes that they're like, there's no way that this could change at this point. Right. Then they certify it after that. And that takes like several weeks because that's just basically, it's like the rubber stamp part of it where they go in, they get the tallies from every district or every county, and then they've added all up. And then like an important person's like, yes. Yes. And that's it. So then from then on, once it's certified, that's the official number of that vote. That's how many people voted for Joe Biden. That's how many people voted for Donald Trump for the, until the end of time. Right. And certifying it is what makes it forever and cemented. And so the Trump administration is trying to block Pennsylvania from being certified because they're like, well, for no reason at all, some of these are fraudulent. <laughs> so those things, they don't have any evidence of it. They just don't want it to happen. But I do feel like we're on a different side of America. In it's true. A week. Still like a shite ton of work to do because like, why was it that close? I don't think it will actually turn out to be that close. This is what I think happened. <laughs> there are the votes that came in on the day and then there are early votes and mail-in votes, right? And in this election, there were more mail-in votes than like ever before because of the coronavirus. Mm-hmm. Generally, who votes earlier votes by mail Democrats who are taking the coronavirus seriously, right? who lines up and votes on the day, older oh, Republicans, yeah. and then those votes get counted first. So I think what we saw, I keep hearing this phrase, and I think it's like a little dramatic, but okay, called Red Mirage, where they're like, mm-hmm. on the day, on Tuesday night, when we were watching all the results come in, it seemed like all these people were voting for Trump, and it was really scary. But I think when all is said and done, it's going to be like 306 to like 220, Right. It's going to be a pretty significant win for Biden. If Georgia and Arizona get certified for Biden, that's a huge fucking deal. Like Georgia right. hasn't gone blue in forever. He was already fighting a much harder battle trying to beat an incumbent president, one that has absolutely no regard for the truth. And we'll just say whatever will serve him in the moment. I saw a Venn diagram that was like <laughs> one term presidents, impeached presidents and presidents who lost the popular vote. And the only one in the middle is Trump. <laughs> That's good. (laughs) How's that for your legacy, sir? Fox News, which has for the last four years pretty much acted as like a White House propaganda machine Mm -hmm. in the sense that like they've really gone to bat for all these wild conspiracy theories that Donald Trump throws out. Yeah. But even they are like, this is over. And I saw, I don't know if you saw this clip that went viral yesterday. You know, they do that thing where it's like the anchor in the studio is listening to like call in people, yeah. right? Who are all yelling or whatever the talking heads. <laughs> so this one, this woman was like screaming and she was screeching about how there's voter fraud 
and Joe Biden isn't the real like president-elect and we should stop calling him president-elect because he's trying to steal the election. And the anchor did not realize that she was still on camera. She thought like it had just gone to these people. Right. So she, looking at the cameraman, she goes, can we turn her off? Like, this is insane. It's done. It's over. Like, what is she talking about? And then, yeah, and then it, turned, it was like live on air. It was delicious. Yeah, that's great. When even your like propaganda minions are like, it's over. Yeah, it's done. Time to go down in your bunker. Yeah, probably. Or, or as my new favorite phrase, Michael Shannon, legend, said, it's time for the urn. Oh. That's my new <laughs> phrase. Oh, my God. I, this is the last thing we'll say about it because I know we have to get started on the actual episode. But Michael Shannon, uh, incredible actor, he had this absolutely bonkers response to, um, to a news journalist who was like, what do you think about the election? And he goes, if you voted for Donald Trump, it's time for the urn. Oh. <laughs> and I was like, it's time for the urn is entering my vernacular. That's incredible. Chelsea, do you have five fun fast facts or perhaps a fact bang for us? I do have a fact bang. Ooh. Are you ready? I'm so ready. You're going to hate it. Okay, great. <laughs> No one does perms anymore is the thing that I have learned. And I got made fun of by Jeff Ramsey because he happens to know someone that runs a hair salon, not naming any names. And I was like, do you know if they do perms? And he was like, no one does perms anymore. And he was like, I asked her and she said, no one does perms anymore. And I was like, that's really embarrassing. And thank you. And then I called all these other places and they were like, we don't do perms. And I was like, this seems fucked up because I see curly hair and wavy hair everywhere. I feel like that is like the thing. So how can you not do perms if this is what everybody wants? Everybody yeah. wants like an Ellie Main sort of like curl <laughs> moment. Honestly, no one wants my type of curl, but carry on. <laughs> this is what I found out. I honestly I thought your fact bang was going to be how difficult it was for you to find, to, to get a perm. <laughs> no. <laughs> Uh, this, I swear, I, I'm not that horrible. <laughs> the perm has rebranded. It's called the American Wave. Oh. Which I don't like. But here's, like, the dumb part about it. It's the same fucking thing, because I went and, like, researched it. And so the way that a perm works, in case you're not clear, in case this is not, like, your struggle, like, your creed, my sacrifice, sure. the way that a perm works is that you take the hair and you slather it in chemicals that literally like break down the building blocks of the hair. So you've turned oh. the hair into like hair jelly and then oh. you wrap that around a rod, right? So like, it, like a curling iron. So you wrap it around a rod to make the curl shape, the pattern that you want. And then you let it dry and then you rinse that stuff out. So now it has reformed, the jelly has reformed and dried in a curl shape. Oh no. It's very bad for your hair. Very bad for your hair. Yes. And so then I looked at the American Wave. It's literally the exact same thing, but they just call it American, American wave, wave instead of perm. You tell me that a perm has had like a PR rebrand? Yes, that's what I'm saying. It's like perms were known in the 90s for just absolutely fucking the shit out of your hair. Yeah. And so now they just don't call it a perm. So all those places that I called that I was like, can I get a perm? They were like, wow, fuck you. And then they were like, but one girl was like, well, we can do an American wave. So then I was like, I'm going to do some research before I say yes to that. And I went and looked it up. It's the same fucking thing. It's the same it's process the same thing. and the same chemicals. They do claim that there are less chemicals, okay. but I don't believe that because it's the same chemicals. Not many people are going for quite the volume of the 90s. Right. Well, that's the thing is, like, I feel like, because you know me, like, my hair is just a giant rectangle straight. <laughs> so I feel like even with, like, any curl at all, it's going to be voluminous. Yeah. But anyway, that was my thing, which was that, like, if ever there's something that seemed like it was shitty before, and then they're like, no, we have this new version, chances are it's the same thing with a new name. <laughs> I love it. That was very good. I'm trying to think of other examples of that. Okay, here's one. And it's a doozy. Canola oil is rapeseed oil. But for very understandable, when, like, when Big Rapeseed was like, we need to get this oil out there, they were like, you cannot call it that. You, they, they still call it that in England. They do? Well, you guys yeah. are fucked up, though. Aw. <laughs> Chelsea, my topic is called Bringing the Heavens Down to Earth. Oh, beautiful. Bringing the heavens down to earth. 
Is it about how Mormons have those secret temples where they pretend <gasps> like it's heaven? No. <laughs> well, I have some TikToks to share with you at another time. Fascinating. Yeah, they're like no. secret temples and you have to like do all these special rites and also like, give them some money and then you get to go to the special temple. Uh, and it's all like pillars and shit. But that's not it. No. Bringing the heavens down to earth. Is it about flying? No. Okay. Is it about space exploration? In a way. Uh-huh. The tale of an unsung hero, which, well, heroine, which you know that we love. <gasps> oh my God, so does mine. So that's exciting. I mean, like, well, mine touches on it a little bit. It's about, like, the race to, like, break the atmosphere barrier when people were first trying to figure out how to go to space. Ooh, no. Damn it. Okay, well, then I do give up, actually. Okay, you ready for my title? I'm so ready. Okay. The greatest social program. The greatest social program. Like a welfare program? Yeah, I guess so. It, it, like lowercase w welfare. Like the welfare of people, not not like literally welfare, welfare, but... Okay, so it's not like a social program with capital letters. Like a government social program. It is a government social program. <laughs> it is a government social program. Is it free healthcare? It is adjacent. Uh, this was my fear. Was like I was trying to figure out how to come up with a title that wouldn't give away the uh, first thing that I want to talk about. It's always the struggle. I know. I was going to do the House of Lords this week, and literally in the first five minutes, it made me so depressed that I had to choose something else. I do want to know about the House of Lords because um, horrible. Yeah, and also because I saw I don't I can't remember if he was a, a lord. I think, but I think he was the House oh, of yeah. Lords. The guy the that is this guy. Oh yeah, oh. okay. I was like, oh my god. That's part I... of the reason I wanted to do it was because <laughs> one of the lords in the House of Lords just tweeted like that Kamala the Indian got into power and like it's super racist and is being pulled up for it and like my favorite part about the, well my two favorite parts about that were like one then when he got called out on it he was like well it's just because I didn't know her name at the time and I was like that does not make it better. No, that's what. <laughs> And then somebody posted a picture of him and he literally looked dead, like the way that like Prince Philip looks dead. Oh, God. No, it's time for the urn. Thank goodness this man's choosing our laws. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> Bringing the heavens down to earth. <gasps> this is the until recently fairly untold story and the surrounding context of Hisako Koyama and her life's work. Oh my god. Thanks to a recent paper published in Space Weather, which is a journal of the American Geophysical Union. You subscribe to Space Weather? Space Weather. That's what the, that's what the <laughs> journal's called. I don't know what to tell you. Hisako Koyama's story is now being told among Western astronomers for the first time. She was born in Japan in 1916, and she began observing the sun when she was 28 and when she died in 1997, she left behind roughly four decades of the most consistent and reliable records of sunspots ever produced. Oh, wow. Ever produced. For the, I mean, not for me or anything, because like I definitely know, but like for the folks at home, could you talk about like what a sunspot is? Oh my gosh, yes. Okay. <laughs> so sunspots are this phenomena that you can observe on the photosphere, which is the posh name for the surface of the sun. You can take that to parties. <laughs> As their name suggests, they're regions that give off less light than the surrounding surface of it. And this is crucial to what we're going to talk about today. They can appear and disappear, lasting days to months, and range in size from 10 miles in diameter up to 100,000 miles, Hell which is 0.001, now that the, you love that, to yeah. 10% of the diameter of the sun. So they can get yeah. pretty big. Well, sun big. <laughs> some big. Some very yeah. big. Sunspots also very big. Okay. They come in cycles and correlate with magnetic activity, like solar flares and the big like mass ejections. If you've seen when the sun goes, Bleh! and like a big old like loop of sun stuff comes out of it. Mm -hmm. You know, I know a lot about space. Yeah. Both those things are pretty threatening to our little planet. I have heard that the solar flares could just be like it. Yeah, we could just have a big solar flare and then everyone's like, oof, rather hot down here. <laughs> like the, like, like the dinosaur. exactly how we'd say it. Well, guys, sort of melting over here. How about you? <laughs> For this reason, accurate historical records of the sun and all the stuff that it does are pretty vital to understanding and predicting the future of the sun, which is pretty vital to understanding and predicting the future of us little people. True. But before I talk about 
Hisaka Koyama. I want to give you a bit more context on sunspots and why the work that she's done is so, so cool. So we're going to journey all the way back to 1611. Oh, good. 1611, where are we? What's happening? We are early scientific revolution of the early modern era. That was when people were like, oh, actually, maybe we should like cut up bodies and see how they work. We're kind of like <laughs> coming into that era of all the great polymaths, which is a word I learned. Mm-hmm which just means like a genius in many fields. So like Newton and the others. A polymath. <laughs> oh, that's nice. Mm-hmm. Someone who's just a genius in many fields who's like renowned for all the scientific stuff. But kind of a dick about it. But kind of, I mean, most of them are kind of dicks about it. <laughs> uh, as, we'll learn. as I uh, was exploring the time of 1611 here, I found that it's at a pretty fascinating time in astronomy. This is a time where scientists and astronomers of the time polymath of the time especially, were challenging the common Aristotelian part philosophy, part scientific belief that the heavens beyond the moon were perfect and unchanging. That's where we're at. So that's the commonly held belief since, all, since the time of Aristotle, that the heavens are like perfect, celestial, unchanging. That's just what they are, right? Mm-hmm. And our polymath of the time are starting to be like, hang on though, I, I've seen this in my here telescope. Copernicus's 1543 work on the heliocentric model of the solar system tried to demonstrate that the sun was the center of the whole universe. Few people were bothered by his suggestion. Actually, Copernicus's model was later used to create the Gregorian calendar. Nice. But the idea that the Earth moved around the sun was doubted by most of Copernicus's contemporaries because it contradicted the authority of Aristotle. So who comes along to prove a point? Galileo. 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 Oh, good. Galileo pops up. Great polymath, bit of a dick. (laughs) He and his mate Johannes Kepler gave this theory credibility. Kepler was an astronomer who proposed that the planets move around the sun, not in circular orbits, but in elliptical ones. Together with his other laws of planetary motion, this allowed him to create a model of the solar system that was an improvement on Copernicus's. And then Galileo contributed to that with the mechanics of it, with using observations that he made through his telescope and a detailed presentation of the case for this system. Through their combined discoveries, at the end of the 17th century, it was generally accepted by astronomers. One of the points he used to prove his case was sunspots. Sunspots. How did we figure these out? This guy, Jesuit Christoph Scheiner, Good. first observed sunspots in March 1611, back to where we've traveled. And he ignored them until he saw them again in October. When he found them, he attributed the sightings to either a defect in his own eye, problems with the lens of the telescope, or a possible disturbance in the atmosphere. But he rejected all of those because other people had already seen them. He used eight other telescopes and still saw spots on the sun. And he rejected that there was a disturbance in the atmosphere because there was no cloud that could follow the sun's motion throughout the day, given the sun's diameter. And the spots also showed no parallel motion, but the movement across the sun was constant. He's like, well, it's spots. No. (laughs) Shit. (laughs) No, because that, that would go against Aristotle. So he believed that there were small orbiting bodies around the sun. Oh, okay. Blocking the sun's light. And Galileo goes, shut up, you slag. (laughs) (laughs) He observed the sun at the same time uh, a day for 36 consecutive days, allowing him to track the motion of sunspots across the surface of the sun. And he wrote a little paper called Letters on Sunspots. Beautiful. Outlining his observation of dark spots. And then him and and Shiner got into like a little back and forth with letters. (laughs) You know, that's one of my favorite like history motifs is when they get yeah. into like remember the Dino Wars when they got yes. into, like you sir no mm-hmm. you sir exactly they got into like they published little pamphlets back in 1612 that were like well this is why you're wrong in one of his letters Galileo says I have finally concluded and I believe I can demonstrate necessarily that they i.e. the sunspots are contiguous to the surface of the solar body where they are continually generated and dissolved just like clouds around the earth and are carried around by the sun itself which turns on itself in a lunar month with a revolution similar in direction to those other of the planets which news will be I think the funeral or rather the extremity and last judgment of pseudo philosophy I wait to hear the spoutings of great things from the 
peripatetics to maintain the immutability of the skies. That's the, episode, like, <laughs> that's the Aristotelian school. He's like, I can't wait to see what you're going to say to this. That's incredible. <laughs> that's why we even know about sunspots, because they were used to prove against Aristotle's theory that everything beyond the Earth is perfect and unchanging. Although, as we like to talk about on this podcast a lot, how we only ever tell Western science, or Western history, I should say, Chinese astronomers knew about sunspots as far back as 364 BC, and by the start of the first millennium, they were regularly recording them. So, of <laughs> course. But back to the modern day, more or less modern day. Hisako Koyama graduated from an all-girls high school in Tokyo in 1930s and was keen on astronomy from a super early age. During the blackouts of World War II, instead of staying inside, she would camp out in her backyard with a star chart to study the heavens. And shortly before her 30th birthday, her father gave her a small refracting telescope. All, a lot of this has been uncovered by an author, Dolores Nip, who is a professor of aerospace engineering sciences at the University of Colorado in, at Boulder. Cool. Kayama had aspirations to join the moon division of Japan's Oriental Astronomical Association, but was informed that her telescope wasn't powerful enough for lunar observing. So she turned it to the sun instead. And instead of using the telescope as a pinhole camera, she projected an image of the sun on a flat surface and began sketching sunspots. And she eventually got up the courage to submit one of her drawings to Japan's Oriental Astronomical Association, or the OAA. The president of the solar section at the time responded with encouragement, and so Koyama kept Aww. at it. And a few years later, she was hired as a staff observer at the Tokyo Science Museum, which is now the National Museum of Nature and Science, where she worked until her retirement in 1981 at the age of 65. Can you imagine working at one place for 30 years? I know, so many people used to do it. It was, <laughs> it was how everyone operated. Crazy. If I got to be a star observer at like the National Museum, I might be more likely to yeah. stay there for 30 years. If it was cool. Yeah. <laughs> During her tenure at the museum, Koyama came to work every day for nearly 40 years to look at the sun's surface and record what she saw. Each day that wasn't foiled by weather, she produced a detailed sketch, taking note of precise times, locations, sizes, and shapes of the spots that she observed. A drawing a day may not seem like much, but all her drawings taken together add up to more than 10,000 glimpses of the sun, featuring over 8,000 unique sunspot groups, and they are absolutely essential to the 400-plus year record of sunspot activity. This author, Nip, connected with, I'm going to butcher this name, I'm so sorry, Hyukusen Lu, a space scientist at Kyushu University in Japan and a historical research fellow at the Japan Society for the Promotion of Science in Tokyo to dig more into her history, and all three soon realized it was a story that had to be told. Her life and career are proof that non-European men, not to mention women, were active in the field of astronomy at a time when recorded history was oblivious to their existence. The more they learned about Kyama's story, the more amazing she became. Not only did she obtain a high school education, when that was far from expected path for a girl in Japan at the time, but she transitioned into her full-time job without an advanced degree. Today, we would classify Koyama as an amateur astronomer, but she seems to have straddled the gap between amateur and professional, never being academically trained in solar physics, but making fundamental contributions to the field at the same time. Outside of her prescribed work, Koyama was dedicated to education and outreach. She organized events, classes, and seminars to share her love of astronomy and her knowledge of the sun with anyone who asked. Even after she retired, she continued to visit the museum and interact with the museum goers. Her work helped to highlight amateur astronomy and, and citizen science in Japan. There's no way to know how many young girls she may have ins inspired in her own country, but it's clear young girls in all countries need to hear her story. And that's the story of Hisako Koyama. Wow. You know what I like the best about that story? Wow. is that she started when she was 28, mm -hmm. like 28 to 30. Like, I love stories about people, especially now that we're all going to live longer. Sometimes I feel like people in our age group have this very misguided vibe, myself included sometimes on my more like anxious days of just like, well, I haven't accomplished anything by 30. So therefore, like my life is over. Right. Like, the next few years are just going to be like a downward slog of like not achieving anything. And right. it's just ridiculous. And like, Especially, you know, back in like 1916 or I guess what was it, 1946, that like this woman was like, no, like I think stars are cool and yeah. I'm going to start looking at them. And like you said, like, you know, she kind of made these huge contributions uh, without having to get a degree. And with absolutely no recognition too. She just kept doing it because she loved it. But yeah. So Eleanor. 
Yeah. What a, you know what? This is like the story that I needed today. Oh, this was such a good, it's such a good vibe, such a good feeling. I'm already excited thinking about people listening to this tomorrow and just maybe feeling a little bit better about themselves. And also I just think like, this is great because I feel like my, at least relatively for me, my uh, topic is pretty uplifting. So I'm like, I'm so glad we, I feel like this is like the vibe, like, like you said, Biden won the election, no matter what Donald Trump says, and we're in a good mood and we have these fun, good stories. So so you know what? Fuck it. I'm just going to give you 17 points. 17. Oh my gosh. Thank you. You're welcome. I love it. We're not even going to fuck with it. First of all, I have to start out with a story. God, I hope that my city doesn't listen to this podcast, but I'm like 99% sure that she doesn't because at one point I tried to teach my city what a podcast was. In my mind, I was like, this is a thing that grandparents should be so into, right? This is like radio and like grandparents grew up on radio. Yeah, but we swear a lot. That's true. Well, I don't mean our show specifically. I just mean, <laughs> I tried to get my city to download a podcast oh, at all. Podcast. I was like, this is some weird shit that you would love because it's like radio. Yeah. And she was like, I'm not like, she was just like, she refused. She was like, I'm not doing it. It's different yeah. and it's weird. And I'm not doing it. I'm like, different, well, great. I don't like it. And I was like, I almost guarantee that you would like it, but okay. So I don't think my city will listen to this, which is why I can tell this very funny story, which okay. is that, and I swear it all connects. I'm sure it does. It sure does. So we have a family group chat that is me, my city, my mom, and my aunt, Lisa. Mm-hmm. And, and I do know that my mom and my aunt Lisa listen to this. So shout out to y'all. I'm about to tell this story. So we have our group chat. That's our family chat. That's just about like family stuff. And then when the election was happening, we started a shadow group chat that was just me, Ooh. my mom, and my aunt Lisa <laughs> talking about the election because my city inexplicably, despite marrying um, an Arab immigrant in like the 60s when it was not cool to do so, and despite being the child of like immigrants herself, she is, right. um, she's my mom and aunt's stepmom. And so she's Irish Catholic. Her family was from Ireland and came over in like the early 20th century, okay. like to escape the troubles or whatever. And so I was like, despite having all these experiences, she is a diehard Trump supporter and good, like, good, yeah good. Oh, it's, oh it's very good and it's very strong and we just don't talk about it i think everybody has people in their family that they're like we just i can't do this with you yeah. but we ended up doing it with her because my mom at one point fucked up and accidentally sent a picture of the map to the regular group family group chat and not the shadow group chat uh-huh. and was like biden's winning and then we were, and then because I saw that text come through, Lisa and I were, Lisa claims that she knew all along. I don't believe her. Sorry, Lisa. Because <laughs> we all started responding. We were like, hell yeah, he's going down. It's over for Trump. It doesn't matter what he says. Like if like Biden gets any of these states, like it's fucking over. He can lie all he wants. And then I looked up and I saw the little bubbles and I realized it was regular group chat with City in it and not shadow group chat without Uh-oh. City. And I was like, no but it was too late and my city started going in and she was like i just want to point out that you guys aren't going to have any inheritance once biden like takes office because he's going to take all of the money away and then she goes remember what margaret thatcher said uh the problem with socialism i know i'm telling you ellie it was a wild ride Uh uh-huh what did margaret thatcher say that socialism sounds really good until you run out of other people's money To which I responded, similar to what I said to you earlier, ah, yes, noted humanitarian Margaret Thatcher. (laughs) But it was interesting because the thing that I find so fascinating about this mindset that my city was bringing to the table, that so many people of her age group and like sort of general demographics seem to like have a real cognitive distance about, is that my city, being a retired woman of a certain age, benefits from social programs in the United States that we all pay into like Medicare and social security. And she has like a pension, which is something that none of us can ever hope to have because of income, like structural income inequality. So she is benefiting from the systems working, but wants to deny them to everyone else. Right. So I have been struggling to come up with a great example of a social program that is so non-controversial in nature 
yeah. that everyone can maybe look at it and start to see why things like mutual aid and social like social welfare not only are good for the people who need help like in the immediate sense but they actually make the entire like country or the entire community stronger all the way around even if you were already like doing sort of okay okay even though generally medicare like medicare as it stands right now has a really good like reputation like people generally really like it yeah the minute that you start talking about medicare and you talk about medicare for all people are you know have big strong opinions obviously the aca is very polarizing um even it seems things like schools or prisons people have really strong opinions one way or the other about how that should be So I was like, what if I told you there was a program that benefited everyone, that everyone paid into, that everyone universally understood that it is in our best interest to keep this going, even if you can't afford it, even if it never once comes to you, even if it never interacts with your life in any way, happy to pay for it because it lifts us all up. The lottery. The lottery, exactly. Gonna be so tasty when I fucking win that thing. (laughs) <laughs> God, it's over for you, hoes. No, I am talking <laughs> about the fire service. Oh, because fire. Because fire. Exactly, Ellie. And let's break that down. Let's break down because <laughs> fire. I got really interested. Where I was like, what was the history of the fire service? It turns out it's one of our best examples of mutual aid and social welfare really working for everyone. So let's bring it back also to the 1600s. There's going to be a lot of parallels oh, here. So wow. fuck up. Are you trying to tell me that firemen weren't created as a response to escaping slaves like cops? No, huh. they sure weren't. That's interesting. <laughs> they actually were not and so we can now i will say i do have some facts about how black americans and the fire service interacted over time and it's not 100 percent great i'm sure uh, at, uh, which is true of pretty much any part of the united states history and black americans surprise <laughs> yeah but i will also say because i like i said i want this to be an example of how mutual aid has worked specifically in the united states a country that both benefits from mutual aid and then also says that it's the worst thing in the world for some unknown reason yeah i am only talking about the history of like the fire department or fire service in the u.s i know that like things are different in like the uk or canada y'all yeah like not even to say about like we said like other sort of non-western histories with fire because fire is universal but we are going to talk about yes way today so Let's bring it on back down to the 1600s when the U.S. was a, you know, a fledgling colony of... Galileo's writing his Ponzi letters. Galileo's like, you can go get fucked about the sun. (laughs) (laughs) But at this time, the fire service is based, is all volunteer. Okay. And it's, it's like completely disconnected from the government, but it is all volunteer because again... There's just this fundamental understanding at that time that if you have a fire and fire spreads, then everything fire and then you have nothing. So everything fire now. So now you have nothing. So there was one person that was established by the colony and they were the fire warden. Cool. But their whole job was just to inspect the different dwellings or buildings for your sort of fire risk level and like something to remember also is all the way up until about maybe the mid 20th century fire was a much bigger risk than maybe it is in our everyday life now because most of our appliances in our houses are electronic at this point we also have a lot more understanding about fire safety so buildings are built within like a building code to have certain materials that are less Mm -hmm. flammable right we have smoke detectors and fire detectors we have all these preventative things now in our houses, but back in like the 1600s, and then this, we'll get into it in the 1800s, whole different story. The 1600s, we're in New Amsterdam. It's kind of becoming a, a city, but everything is still like fucking thatched. And so <laughs> the fire warden would go around and be like this. I don't know. This, look at all this wood. I'm oh, going to tell you something, chimney? guys. Fire going to love that. Fire going to love that. And they're like, that's your chimney. And it's pointing straight into that other person's house. Great. Fine. Don't care. Yeah. Dennis, so, I don't care if you want to burn. Margaret doesn't. Yeah. Okay. So this is what they did. And it is very cool. They started building what they called fire societies. So Ooh. this is like an exclusive social club. But all you do is like warn people about fires. 
Okay. You have to be invited and then you pay into it. You pay dues and you're in the fire club. And it was a big social status thing in New Amsterdam to be in the fire club. And is this, this is like the, the 17th century equivalent of the firemen who came to school to, sh- to scare you shitless about how <laughs> all of your family members were going to die in a fire and you had to tie your sheets together and jump out the window. I like to imagine that they would go to like those little schoolhouses with like all the kids in one room and just be yeah. like, you're going to burn to death. Yes. I anyway, mean, later. I felt when the fireman <laughs> came to my school. Oh, they always had at least one story about like a little child getting caught on fire. Getting murdered by the fire. By fire. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that they did that. But their primary task was okay. to be rattlers. Rattlers in the street at night. It's as cool as it sounds. What's a rattler? A rattler was one of these guys in the fire society and this like they'd pay their dues and they'd all buy these like rattling sticks. So imagine just like like a toy, like a stick that goes uh-huh. and they would spread out along the streets and they would just walk the streets at night. And if they saw any evidence of a fire, if they saw smoke or something coming out of a building, that guy would rattle his stick and then the guy on the next street would hear it and then they would all start it was like a you know a a tree effect and they would all start rattling all over the city but here's the thing they didn't have any apparatus or nor the desire to put out the fire they were just letting you know there was a fire and so then oh my god (laughs) they were like hey guys that's the fire anyway i'm gonna get the fuck out of here because that's on fire but i did tell you guys (laughs) i no, because the other part of this is that, and this is partially because cities were a lot smaller. I'm not saying that this would work, although some people have to still in modern society. But the way that they would do it was if you heard the rattler in the middle of the night and it woke you up, you would get up and go get water, as much water as you could, and find the fire and put it out. Like that's just like what neighbors did. They would all get together. And I mean, okay. part of it was just being a decent human being of like, so I don't want The rattler is just like a fire watchman. But yeah, they actually were dealing them. with the fires up to you. Yeah, you still, yeah, you're going to do your own fire. We're not doing the fire. We're the Rattlers. We're so cool. Okay. <laughs> so, so you would get up and you would go put out Margaret's fire. And part of it was just being a decent human being. But also the other part of it was that, again, as closely as all these things were together, they were all made out of the same sort of shoddy materials. If Margaret's house caught on fire, there was a very good chance that your house was going to be next. So it was in your best interest to put out this fire. Right. New Amsterdam becomes New York. Everything keeps building. We get to the 19th century. We have the Industrial Revolution. Let's talk about what that looked like. We have people packed in like rats, right? Across all these tenement buildings. Yeah. Apartments and tenement buildings in New York or in other big cities like Philadelphia, Chicago, they weren't yet built of like big sustainable materials. A lot of them were like bric-a-brac, like, wood houses are like built up on built up as quickly as possible to house as many people as possible because all these workers were flooding into cities to work in factories right this was where work was right so you'd have whole you'd have like you know 10 or 20 families in what we might consider the space for like two families now you might have Mm -hmm. like 10 or 20 families then all packed in really tight all still using wood stoves with or without chimneys all still heating their homes with oil (laughs) Yeah. And then also not to mention the fact that like, they're all there to work in the factory nearby. What does the factory run on? Coal. The entire place is just blanketed in coal. This is just a fire trap waiting to happen. So all of a sudden by the 1800s, the rattling system isn't quite cutting it. Interesting. (laughs) And they're like, we need a system to start actually fighting these fires. So it's still a social club and it's all volunteer, but now you pay in higher dues to buy firefighting apparatuses. And so now these fire clubs aren't just fire watchmen. They are actually there to put out the fire. Mm -hmm. But (laughs) here's what happens. Putting out a fire is a lot more dangerous than rattling a stick in the street. Yeah. Things Uh are on fire. (laughs) So understandably, the people who are doing this want to be paid now. They don't want to just do it for like the social status. Right. Also, because all of these people have come in to work at factories, factories are one of the biggest risks for fires. The factories do not want all these tenement houses to burn down. They want all these people to die. So now we have the birth of fire insurance. So 
both people who are wealthy enough to afford their own homes and also people who run tenement buildings, some of them start purchasing fire insurance. And this is wild. And this is true. Exactly like in Skyrim, the way that you know if a house has fire insurance is there's a mark above the door that they like etch into the door from the fire insurance people that says, I have fire insurance. And the fire insurance companies would pay these volunteer firefighters after the fact. Okay. If they were able to successfully put out a fire in one of the houses that they insured, it was all like real kind of broken up system. The really bad part about this was that say your house caught on fire and you didn't have fire insurance, the volunteer firefighters would still come, but they would still put out the fire. But now they're mad because they know they're not going to get paid by the fire insurance company. So they would just take shit out of your house while they were putting the fire out. Wow. Okay. That's amazing. They were just nicked up. Yeah. So (laughs) this is the system that we have around the 1800s. It's not great. And people are like, things have got to change. So then it's around the Civil War So like around the same time as what we're talking about, that's when they're like, okay, we need to have like a better system. Oh, and then the one thing I want to say, just because it's like a little bit of a side, but it's very interesting. I was trying to find the first female firefighter and the first female fighter firefighter was actually a black American. She was a slave and her name was Molly Williams. And she was a firefighter in New York city in the early 1800s. Again, so she was a, um, volunteer firefighter because at that point they didn't they still didn't have a fire service but she had these work clothes because she was working as a slave in uh the house of a new york city merchant and so she would be running through the streets in like a calico dress and a checked apron putting out fires putting out fires amazing she was completely accepted by the fellow men in the fire brigade because she was so good at it And so I thought that was a really cool story. The information that I found about the sort of the history of Black Americans and firefighting brought up pretty much exactly what you would expect and also kind of revealed, you have like the basic human cruelty of slavery and racism. And then absurdly, the other thing about it is it's just a very inefficient system. Mm -hmm. So there were parts of the country where they actually made slaves or newly freed men be firefighters because it was a dangerous job that nobody else wanted to do. Other places, like in big cities, especially in Northern cities, they would bar Black Americans from being firefighters because it was a status thing. So in the South, you had to be a firefighter if you were Black. Or alternatively, the white fire service would not come to your house if you were Black. So they had to form like all Black firefighter volunteer corps just for their black communities. And then in the North where it had always been a status symbol and they had all these firefighting clubs, they just wouldn't let black people in. So again, great system, super efficient (laughs) and really bad. But let's get back to the formation of the fire department as we know it today. So this is in the 1850s. They're like, this is fucked. The first place to get a fully paid fire department as part of the city is Cincinnati, Ohio, which okay. I guess kudos to Cincinnati. I don't know a lot of things about it. It seems like seems like it's probably a pretty cool town, but yeah. <laughs> it's fine. But yeah, this really happened a lot in the Midwest because then the next one was four years later in 1857, because I can do math, which was in St. Louis. And then in 1859 was in Indianapolis. It's the Midwest really like leading the, leading the charge in city fire departments. And this is what they said. They said, okay, we have this really checkerboard system where we have some places insured, some are not. The volunteer fire department are volunteers, so they'll go to these places, but not these. Right. And it's still hurting people, right? Because if you have a house that's on it's fire, fire yeah, and that nobody comes to fix it, then because you didn't have enough money because you weren't a wealthy enough person to afford fire insurance, mm-hmm. then you're going to cause like possibly a chain reaction in your entire neighborhood. So they were like, what if we had a system where everybody paid just a little bit of money that you won't even miss? Mm-hmm. And then we will have a city fire department that will just go to any fire, no matter what. They'll and, do the and, fire. And you know what else? They will not even take any of your stuff. And that was where the people were like, yeah. You know what? Actually, that does make sense. And you know what? It worked out really. This is why everybody bought into it. And again, you would think that this is basic 
logic, but sometimes you need a good example. This was better for everyone for multiple reasons. If you were wealthy and you could already afford fire insurance, it was really expensive. So now you were paying less right. in, because the public option cost you less money. Mm -hmm. If you were poor and you couldn't afford fire insurance, then either your house might burn down or the, fire, the volunteer firefighters were going to rob you. And so you would rather pay just a little bit of money to get this mm -hmm. cool fire insurance that you could have never afforded before right. than to have to deal with that. Yeah. So everybody won and everybody gets fire protection. And uh, wildly, the system worked really well and was adopted then by every major city in the United States yeah. <laughs> over the next 40 years. And the, my favorite quote comes from Samuel Dunn Maxwell, who was the mayor, sorry, my favorite quote about this sort of like renaissance or I guess naissance because it wasn't really a rebirth. It was just the birth of the modern fire department of the United States came from, came from the mayor, which was Samuel Dunn Maxwell. And he not only established the fire department, but he banned volunteer fire departments. Cause again, if you ah. think about this, like this is similar to maybe something that we're experiencing now in the United States, they're developing these public option fire departments, right? Mm -hmm. But there's still all these social clubs that are like, well, we've been doing this for, you know, 200 years and yeah, it's inefficient. And yeah, we've robbed people. <laughs> but what right do you have to tell us that we can't do that? And Samuel Dunn Maxwell was like, no, you can't fucking do it anymore. I've banned you. And this is his quote about it. <laughs> he was a Norse Celt or a self-proclaimed Norse Celt. And he said, Indianapolis will only accept aggressive paid firemen possessing the bravery and strength of a Highland warrior and the dedication to battle like the Viking. So basically <laughs> he said, get the fuck out of here with your dumb social clubs. We don't want you rattling through our streets anymore. We want true paid trained firefighters because again, yeah. a public option that everybody pays into is going to create the best possible option for everybody. Mm -hmm. Don't know why that's a controversial statement. So <laughs> <laughs> so that is how we got our modern fire department. And the truth is, is that even, I don't know that everybody realizes this, but even as up to now in the 2020s, only about a third of firefighters in the United States are part of a fire department that are right. paid. The rest are still volunteer, but mostly those volunteer fire departments, they're still organized by the government. They're just, mm -hmm. it's a small enough area, like especially in rural areas where maybe they have like one fire a year. It doesn't make sense to keep like a paid staff all the time. So people yeah. will just volunteer their time. But why do they continue to volunteer their time even though we have like sort of a nationalized infrastructure? Because we fundamentally understand on a human level that it's the right thing to do. That if we see right. a fire in somebody's house, we should put it out. That it not only helps other people, but it will help us in the long run because we don't want things to be on fire. Mm -hmm. And so I think this is a really good example when you need a moment to try to explain to somebody, hey, maybe it would be better if everybody were healthy. And if mm -hmm. there were just one system where we could all pay a little bit of money instead of some people paying a lot of money and some people not being able to pay at all, we all just paid a little bit of money and then everybody was healthy, then less people would get sick. Right. <laughs> so much like a fire, it actually benefits everyone. Everyone saves money. Everyone gets healthier. We don't have preventable illnesses ravaging through our health ecosystem the same way that we don't have preventable fires ravaging through coal-laden towns. Mm -hmm. So the next time that you accidentally text your uh, octogenarian city, <laughs> <laughs> a an electoral college map, and it starts a conversation about social welfare, think about the fire department. Mm -hmm. and think about how absolutely no one, no one would choose to go back to a point where they have to pay, say, $500 a month to keep their house safe from fire, or they're going to get robbed. Let's equate a household fire to someone in that household having a um, deadly disease that spreads really quickly if not managed. Uh-huh. And let's imagine that like we're in like a little cul-de-sac, okay? And like the house, very bottom of this cul-de-sac has a little fire in it. And everyone's like, maybe some people in the house were like, you know what? I don't think that fire is a thing. I don't think it's dangerous. I don't think it matters. And then like fast forward a few days and all of those houses are on fire. <laughs> you could liken that to like a, an airborne kind of virus <laughs> <laughs> that could devastate a community if left unchecked. 
Right. Say we weren't even in a pandemic and one of your favorite things to do was to go to restaurants where people make you delicious food. Right. And then they serve it to you. Yeah. And then say that the person making your food was on fire because they couldn't afford fire insurance, uh, but they also couldn't afford not to go to their job. So when their house caught on fire and they caught on fire, they were like, well, I guess I still have to go to work. Otherwise, I'll die. And yes, I realize that there's a paradox there, but there's nothing I can do about it because this is the absurdity of capitalism. So now they're on fire making your food and then your food comes to you and now you're on fire too. Whereas if you had just supported a public option, then that person could have afforded insurance because it would have been just given to them by the government and then they wouldn't have had to go on to work on fire. In fact, their Mm -hmm. house might not have caught on fire at all. And then you wouldn't have gotten on fire slash sick. Does everybody follow that? Does that make sense? <laughs> Does that, is that make why sense? public health is important? Um, <laughs> anyway, that's the history of the fire department in the I United States. Fascinating topic. Uh, I'm going to give you five points for your story about city because I always love a story of accidental texting. Yeah, it's good. It's just a good, it's a great phenomenon of our modern life. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to give you another four points because your whole thing about the, the story about the rattlers gave me an idea for a short comedy pilot. Oh, good. To test some writing skills, like a very kind of Simon Pegg, Nick Frost kind of situation of like the rattlers in town. Speak to mm-hmm. me. I'm going to take off two points for the sticky fingered fireman. Yeah, um, just because that's got to suck for the poor people who can't afford insurance. Our house is already on fire. <laughs> yeah, whose house is already on fire. They're like, we'll put it out. It's going to cost you. I'm coming back with eight points for Molly Williams. She's somebody I want to read more about and maybe write about. Can you imagine like a really dramatic, like hour long TV series about like a black woman in like 1800s New York, just like oh, putting out fires, telling everyone to fuck right off. A final point for the topical topic and how it um, compared with the virus. I think that's very, very clever. Thank you. Oh my God. That's our show. Thank you guys so much for listening. Chelsea, where can people find you? People can find me at Chelsea Harfouche on Instagram, Twitter, wherever internets are sold. And you can find me at Ellie Main on Instagram, Ellie Maney on Twitter. And you can find this podcast at WhatPod, W-U-T-P-O-D, on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Patreon, Redbubble. And I think that's it. And you can find our website at thosetwogirls.club. Uh, thank you so much for listening. I hope to see you next week. And in the meantime, I don't know, why don't you um, go learn something? Look, keep it loose, keep it tight. Say your prayers at night. Don't catch on fire. Don't catch on fire.